You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we welcome back another Team Guru alumni, Dr. Karen Morley. Karen joined me about a year ago, episode 107, and we had an awesome conversation about the importance of being a leader who coaches, and this conversation is just as good. Karen's new mission is to beat gender bias. It's not a new topic, but Karen brings an intelligence to it that adds depth. Preparing for this conversation made me wonder about myself. I like to think that I'm a progressive, open-minded, fair-spirited guy, but at the same time, I no doubt carry around with me unconscious bias that limits me and the people around me. So that's where I started. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Karen Morley. Dr. Karen Morley, welcome back to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always nice to have repeat offenders on the podcast, Karen. (laughs) And I was just telling you before we hit record, I remember the last time we chatted, we chatted about leaders are coaches, and it was such a fabulous conversation. So if you're listening to this episode and you like what you hear from Karen, go back and find her episode ages ago. I don't know what number it is, but it's all about leaders as coaches, and it was just fantastic, which means I'm so looking forward to our conversation again, Karen. You're, is this book number two you're about to put out or just have just put out? It's book number three. Uh, This is actually the second book that I've written that's focused on gender and gender balance leadership. Uh So it's a slightly different topic, but in a lot of ways, I think coaching and bringing out the best of everyone, including women, fits really well together. And so there's a bit of an echo of the coaching focus in this book. Well, that's actually a really good point. I I was going to ask you about the link between what you and I have talked about before and and the bias, the idea of gender bias. And you've just answered that question. It's all about getting the best out of people. And I guess this gender bias or beating gender bias is honing in on one really particular way to do that. Mm, It is. And I think that I've written the book really for those leaders who want to be good leaders, which is many of them but aren't really quite sure how to approach this particular area. And I, were, I had a, a number of conversations last year with different leaders and was thinking about how do we open up this conversation in a way that invites people to be curious rather than lead us into conflict, which so many conversations about gender and bias do. So what could we do differently? What sort of different conversation could we have that would allow those leaders that want to improve their leadership, that do want to be inclusive of women and and other people, but don't necessarily know quite how to do it? So I'm hoping that this book is an invitation to those leaders to step into this area, to feel that they can be a bit more open in their interest that they can get some tools and some skills that will allow them to, you know, to go into conversations, to feel a bit more confident and not be feeling like they're walking on eggshells. So I want to start at least our conversation this way. I'm going to be really selfish and talk about myself here, Karen. So I'm about to turn 45 
I'm a professional. Um, you and I have had a couple of conversations, so you know me ever so slightly. I work in a professional setting in teams that are just as likely to be men as they are women, my colleagues, all through my career of both genders. I'm really, and I think that I'm, I'm a kind of a progressive guy. I, I, I think that I have no deliberate bias, gender or otherwise. I think I'd rate, you know, my bias to be quite low. I think I'm just really interested in what bias I'm carrying around that I don't know about. And how does yeah. that bias surface? And I guess more importantly, how does that bias limit me and the people around me? Mm. You're the perfect target for the book because it is those people who are curious. And I fit into that category too. So one of the stories that I tell in the book is about walking along an airport concourse and I saw two pilots ahead of me. One was a very tall man and one was a small woman. And I caught myself in the act of being biased. What I was thinking immediately as I saw them was, she's too small. She's not going to be strong enough to, to fly the plane. Wow. So, I, no, I wouldn't even think that, Karen. <laughs> I know. There you go. There you go. So these, I mean, what's really happening, and this comes out of the work of Daniel Kahneman and Aaron Tversky and a number of people like that who've really opened up our understanding of what happens in our unconscious mind. And so while we might have particular beliefs about women and work with men and women and be very open to people from, you know, other races and backgrounds, we consciously think that we still might carry under the surface unconsciously a set of beliefs that's directly opposed to that, which is the more traditional set of beliefs that it has that, you know, women are kind and warm and soft and nurturing and the sorts of roles that they should play in society and at work are support roles. Whereas on the other hand, men are competent and capable and directive. They should be in charge. They're authoritative. And so they naturally should step into leadership roles. So we can have this, you know, crazy kind of contradiction going on. Again, the book is really about taking people who are well-meaning, helping them to understand that that is going on. So there's a chapter that's focused on understanding the unconscious mind and how that works and where those stereotypes come from and how they might interfere with our thinking, even if we don't know they do. So that that's a basis, yes, for understanding what's going on. So I was, I was going to ask, so how do I, so, you know, I've painted this probably very rose-colored picture of myself, well-meaning, curious, uh, I don't think I carry around too much bias, definitely not, not a lot of conscious bias. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of unconscious bias there. How do I go about really understanding that so I can stop limiting myself and stop limiting the people around me? Yeah, and that's a kind of great motivation. A really strong motivator is incongruence. So if you have these beliefs about what you want to or how you want to show up in workplaces, but then you have a question about what might be going on underneath the service that can lead to a sense of incongruence. And as humans, we're very motivated to kind of be congruent. So that's a great motivation to get people involved. So what I think is important is firstly, having an understanding of how our minds work and that we have this dichotomy of belief systems that might contradict each other. 
so we can know about that first up. Part four of the book, which is called Walking the Culture Talk, is a series of three chapters that are meant to be very, very practical. What can you do in conversations? What can you notice? How do you notice? What do you do when you notice something that might look like bias? So you're a bit predisposed or primed to see some things that might be bias. And then there are some some ways of engaging. And one of the most useful things, I think, to take into conversations and, and to attempt to be a better person in those conversations is to take a growth mindset and not to be beating yourselves up about what you might be getting wrong, but really to be, again, curious to be saying, what might be going on in this conversation that's sitting beneath the surface that I don't see? And if you're with a group of like-minded people, you can have that conversation with them. And people can start to ask themselves different kinds of questions. When we consider options in this conversation, okay, we've come up with three, but which options have we missed? So we can just ask different questions and keep exploring what we're coming up with and running counter arguments to our position. And those sorts of things just make better decisions regardless of gender or demographic characteristics. They're ways to make better decisions. So the idea of taking a growth mindset and thinking about how you can be a better person and show up in a better way, I think is a really good starting place. All right. So let's take that as assumed. I, I have a growth mindset. The people around me at work, we all have a growth mindset. And we just want to spend a period of time checking ourselves against these unconscious biases that we might be carrying around specifically about gender, but I guess more broadly, those bias, that bias could be about anything. What do conversations sound like between a group of people who trust each other, who are on the same page about this idea of growing and getting the most out of each other, and they want to bring to the surface the potential for bias as they're discussing ideas and making decisions and working as a team? What might a conversation like that sound like on a real practical level? So one of the things that you might do is start the conversation by setting up some specific ground rules. And I talk about three in particular in chapter 10, where I talk about how do you set up good conversations? And they are curiosity, candor, so that people can say what they really think without holding back. They can still be polite and kind to others, but also to say what is really on their mind. And then keeping confidences. So if you're doing those sorts of things, being curious and you're saying what you really think, you want to to be confident that, that people are going to keep that to themselves rather than use it against you at some other time. So setting some ground rules uh, at the beginning of the conversation makes really good sense. There are a number of different tactics then. One, one of the, the tactics that you could use is to set yourself a goal and about the kinds of questions you ask, the amount of time different people spend speaking in that meeting, how many options you develop before you decide on a solution, for example. You could monitor whose decision do you usually choose? You know, Is it the dominant male or is it a mixed uh, set of responses? 
turn-taking around the group is really important too. Now, not everybody wants to contribute on everything, so it's not about making them do that. But one of the pieces of research that's really helpful to rely on here is about collective intelligence and how you actually maximize, if you like, the performance of a team. And it's not simply putting people in a room together, but one of the things that really does maximize the performance of the team is to make sure that you get the input from everybody. So that means turn-taking as you're having a discussion, you're raising the issues, you're thinking about options, you're making the decision. Each person has the opportunity to have their say, and that's explicit. It's invited. It's not something that you assume. So there's a few different tactics that you could use. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. They're really fabulous and and practical and very implementable. The idea that we set up some ground rules, curiosity, candor. I love the word candor. I first read that in in Robin Sharma. I'm not sure if you're you're familiar with his work. And confidences. So this is a, a conversation we're having in good faith. And then you have a whole bunch of kind of goals about the number of questions we ask, the number of ideas we come up with before we make a decision. We ensure that there's there's a really good spread of turn-taking and opportunities to have your say. Without ground rules like that, what does the workplace look like for women in 2020? The workplace, I think, can be quite a hostile environment for women. In some organisations, they are paying more attention to psychological safety and including ground rules, and that makes a really big difference. And it makes a helpful difference, not just for women, but for any minority group. But I think where that's not attended to, what happens is something that's called identity threat. And when women are in the minority, identity threat kicks in. That means that women don't see themselves as playing a legitimate part in this group. It's much more threatening for them to be a part of the team. And that means that when we go into that threat mode, we might become hypervigilant. It takes up cognitive resources. We're preoccupied with, if you like, our status or our identity in the group. And that means that our performance drops. So women can feel quite confronted about being in a group and whether or not and how they can participate to their maximum. And because of this identity threat process, it means that when they do show up, there can be a performance deficit. So it's a really challenging situation for women to be in. And that's why it is particularly important to pay attention to how teams work together and for leaders to think about what are the particular challenges that different demographic groups face. One of the things that often happens is that to get this sense of group camaraderie and sharing of information, we tend to talk about, say, our hobbies or certain topics that are important or you know, relevant to the dominant group. So if we talk about those things and the things that we care about, it will mean that we're welcoming others in. It doesn't actually work that way. That really backfires without people knowing about it. it Because again, what it it heightens. Mm. Sorry? It highlights the fact that I don't belong to this group. It does. Mm. Yes. And if it's not something that's important to me, 
it makes it very hard for me to fit in. I have to go out of my way to try and fit in or I ignore it or I shut down. And so the group doesn't get my kind of full personality and full talent. Okay, I'm going to ask a question that is a really risky one, and I'm, I'm trying to think how to word it without sounding like a, a 1960s bigot. But let, you talked about the idea of identity threat for women, so especially when they're in the minority in the room. What if that's true? What if you looked around and you did a, an objective stock take and there are fewer women than there are men, maybe even a lot fewer women? But at the same time, let's say all of those men are just well-meaning, good guys who have no deliberate bias. They might have some underlying unconscious bias that they're trying to be aware of. But because of the pure numbers in the room, there could be someone sitting there, a female sitting there who, who has this identity threat because they have perceived that they're on the outer because they're a different gender to most people in the room. Whereas the other people in the room are just kind of thinking, okay, well, what, you know, let's let's talk about the issue. Let's make a decision here. I just wonder what, you know, how often is that situation happening and, and whose role is it to try and fix that? Hmm. I think that situation is happening a lot. Um, and thank you for your candor in asking that question. <laughs> Again, I think it's about somebody stepping up. We often... It's a leadership thing. Want yeah. A number of people in that group, even if there are a small number of women and a larger number of men, amongst those men, there are likely to be some men like you who are saying, I'm just a bit uncomfortable about this. I'm a bit concerned about what's going on here. I know about identity threat. And what I want to do is to make it safer for women to be here. So it depends on your role and your level of comfort. If this is an ongoing meeting, a regular meeting, you could speak with the team leader if you're not the team leader and talk about the importance of setting up some ground rules and thinking differently about how the meetings play out. In the meeting, at the time that you perhaps notice that there is a bias in the conversation that not all of the perspectives are getting onto the table, you could invite the minority perspectives. So you could turn to those people and say that you value their opinion and invite them to contribute in that conversation. And they may do that. Sometimes women feel very uncomfortable about that when it's new and they don't necessarily understand what's happening. And one of the challenges for women is one of the kind of a damned if you do, doomed if you don't sort of situations for women is that they get very concerned about speaking up, don't necessarily represent themselves well, and then it backfires on them. So again, if you're thinking about this in advance and you had the opportunity to speak with some of the women, you might talk about how would they like to contribute? What would make the meetings feel more comfortable? And how could you be an ally to them? One of the things that's really um, exciting, I think, at the moment is that a number of organisations, certainly one organisation that I'm working with right now, has set up an allies program. So that is a group of mainly men with some senior women as well who are prepared to really watch out for those kinds of conversations and those kinds of situations. And what they can do is be allies for the women in the group. And again, the chapter 11 talks a bit about some of the things that you can do as an ally or as a champion for women. 
I tell you what, I really like that concept, the idea of being an ally in the room. That really appeals to me. I, I understand what you mean by that just by the way you've described it. It's a very powerful concept. Hey, Karen, I had a really interesting conversation with um, on my podcast a little while back, I think in September last year, it was episode 116 with a guy called David Peach. David's the CEO of the Institute of Managers and Leaders in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, he was a great guy. He, he, he was really interesting to chat with. But at the beginning of the conversation, he told the story about his last name, Peach, because he made a bit of a game about not telling me how to pronounce it at first. And it turns out that David was not born David Peach. He and his wife, the night before they married, flipped a coin to see who would take whose name. And she won the coin toss. So they both took her name when they got married. And that conversation has really stuck with me because here I was thinking I was getting around being quite a progressive guy. And when David talked about that, it made me realize that, gee, there, there are bits about me that are super traditional. For example, when, you know, when I got married, my wife did take my name everywhere except where, where it's important, like on Facebook and at work and things like that. But our kids, we have three kids, they're all my name, they're all Frizzells. And for some reason, that was super important to me. And it still would be super important to me. And I, I just wanted to highlight that because David really challenged me in terms of being completely gender unbiased. He made me realize that despite this opinion I have of myself of being a modern progressive guy, there is still a fair bit of stuff about me that is back in the dark ages. Yeah. And so one of the things I think that's really important, it was one of my discoveries last year when I was thinking about how do we make it so much easier to have conversations about bias and what we believe and to do the candor with each other. And I came across a fantastic book by Dolly Chug, which is called the person you mean to be. And one of the things that I've taken away from that and is really influencing very much is that we often hold ourselves up to a standard that's just too high. We want to be good. And what she says is that rather than hanging our self-esteem and our view of ourselves on this notion of good as an absolute, we really need to focus on just being better. So if you think about rather than, oh, somebody else did this and I haven't done that. What does that mean for me? Oh, Instead of, of thinking that. about that, just focus on what is one thing you can do tomorrow that makes you better? Mm, what is one like kind idea. of question you can ask yourself to be more open that might, what's another question that you can ask a woman or somebody from a minority group about their experience and to make an offer of help to them? And so what changed in that? for me, was this idea that the bad guys or, you know, the people with the wrong attitudes need to change them. And or for myself, I can't hold myself to a standard of being perfect. And that if we could put those things aside and instead of thinking about, okay, I've got an intention to make the world a better place. I've got an intention to make the world more inclusive. What is it that I can do when I go into conversations that moves that in the right direction? And so I don't have to hold myself to a standard of being good all the time because it's too hard. 
I can hold myself to a standard of making improvements and being better. And so, David, I think you're doing a great job. And I think you're not, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And perhaps David, the other David, Pish, is not perfect either. But we're all works in progress. And I think mm, that's, that's what's most important. That's a really nice piece of advice. And, and on that, your idea about being an advocate in a group setting for whether it's a, you know, people who are in the gender minority or any other type of minority, I think is a really nice concept. Hey, I've got one more question and then I'm going to hit you up for those gold pieces of takeaway advice that we'll finish with. My last question before we get to those bits of advice is about organizations. So this whole conversation about gender bias and beating gender bias is not a new one. It's been a a long time in the making and you could say that a lot of progress has been made, but clearly there's still a lot of a lot more work to be done. Because of the longevity of this and because of some of the progress that has been made, is there a, a danger that some organizations will switch off this and think that they've nailed it and there's nothing more to do here? A bit like we're in danger of thinking we've flattened the curve and we can we can let go of some of our COVID-19 <laughs> restrictions. Okay. Is there any kind of risk there? I think there is. I think the bigger threat, though, in organisations is when the leadership changes. And so somebody has led some good work and that person might move on and somebody else comes in and the work doesn't get the same um, attention and the same level of importance. So I think that that's actually the bigger concern. What I think is that when organisations do make progress, there are a couple of really good things that happen. One is people start to speak differently about diversity and inclusion, and they get to see the benefit of it. If it's done in the right way, and it's not you know, too rule-oriented, um, and we don't put the wrong people in the wrong jobs, then I think that what happens is that people see it works. They can have colleagues who are different from them. And if they've got leaders who are advocating for that and for the value of diversity, then it starts to become the new norm. That's what the behavioral economists certainly promote, this idea that what we need to do is is to shift the norms. And as we shift them, they become new norms, which means that they stick. And I think that there's a, there's a chapter in the book, chapter nine, which is about culture in organizations and the importance of leaders focusing on that culture. And I think if they do that at that more systemic level, it's not a policy level or a strategy level, it's very much about the culture and what people do and how they do it, then I think it can stick. Nice, nice answer. All right, let's hit you for your gold nuggets, Karen. So let's pitch this at people like me, people who are well-meaning, they're in professional settings, they want to be good, they want to get the most out of themselves and the people around them, but they suspect there are these deep-rooted biases that they just can't always put their finger on. They're probably doing things that reek of bias without even being aware of it, subconscious or otherwise. What are the top, what are, you know, you tell me three or five things that I can do, I can remember as I'm making my way through my day to make sure that I'm just being that bit better. Yeah. I think one of the things that you can do is advocate for the value of diversity and inclusion and speak about the value from a business point of view. 
I think a lot of time when we, if we talk about the value from a moral point of view and it's kind of the right thing to do as human beings, which is true, I don't think that's a good enough argument for an organisational setting. In an organisation which is designed to produce particular results, we need to talk about the value of diversity and inclusion in helping us achieve those results. So advocate for it and advocate for its value in the context and in the understanding of of what the organisation is there to do. I think that I often suggest that what leaders do is to pick a couple of new metrics, some data points, and collect the data. So one of the things that we know is that managers, whether they're male or female, spend less time in development and career discussions with women than they do men. So one of the things that leaders can do is identify what sorts of data points exist in my world that are similar to that, if not that one, and collect the data for a few weeks. Time yourself. How long do you have these kinds of conversations about these kinds of things with these people? And you can do your own reality check. And and that's a way of discovering whether there might be some unconscious bias happening. Now, once you've got that data, you can do something with it. So there are a number, I think that I, I recommend that leaders think about those sorts of the interactions that they have who speaks the longest, who gets the most airtime, who gets the most of your attention, collect the data on a couple of those things and then have a look at what you're doing. When you've done that, you can make the changes. I think there are a number of other things that you can do. And I think one of the things is not to let those little moments go by. When you've got that little niggle, I'm not sure that that was right. That seemed a bit off. And in the conversational moment, you're not necessarily sure what triggered that. You know, the conversation's gone on already. But holding it up and bringing it back in the team to say, hang on, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure what happened there. Can we just have a discussion about that? And spend three minutes, even uh, go around the room. What did you hear? What happened? What do you think happened? You might want to say, oh, I'm a bit, un-. yeah. So you can take that again as some data and information for the team. But I think it's about voicing those opportunities, giving voice to the, the niggles that you experience and turning them into something productive and opportunity for learning And that's where the growth, another way the growth mindset comes in. We can explore what this means for how we work together. Susan, I'll tell you what, Karen, it all sounds so rational and calm in that beautiful way that you put it, that very calm, professional way of putting it. Just pull the conversation up and ask people what they saw and and don't let the niggle go by. It it sounds so nice and, and it makes perfect sense. But I, I, it's just a, a, those sort of things are a real challenge in the workplace. But I guess that's why it's hard and that's why it's worth doing. That's right. I think one of uh, – we can come back to leader as coach, but we often think of leadership as being heroic and about the big things, about the commanding, controlling, about the strategy. For me, it's about every interaction and it's about the everyday interactions and what they're like and how people experience them. And that's where change happens. And particularly if we're talking about sort of 
personalities or we're talking about beliefs or we're talking about biases, taking the heat out of those conversations, opening up with curiosity, admitting your own foibles and your own potential for bias means that other people engage in the conversation in a much more open way. I mean, it's been my strong desire. Was, I spent the last six months of last year really thinking about how can we take the contention out of these conversations and turn them into something that's a growth opportunity, something that we can learn from. And then I think this is the next phase in our step towards gender equality. It comes down to the, the everyday interactions we have. That's an excellent place to leave it. Karen Morley, as always, it's been a real experience and a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. I've enjoyed it. And that was Karen Morley. I loved the advice, simple and implementable, about having ground rules for conversations. And I was pleased to hear that Karen's work is aimed directly at people like me, well-meaning but flawed individuals. It's designed to open our minds further and offer practical suggestions about uncovering and conquering the bias that lies inside. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Karen on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it, along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts, on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Bye for now.